Hello? 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 Horatio. Uh, hey there, Horatio. How you doing, Ice Guy? Great. Welcome to the Ice House. And today we're going to be speaking with our good friend Horatio. Horatio, state your ideology and anything else about yourself? So I view myself as a paleo-conservative and a capital T traditionalist with an emphasis on religious morality. Hmm. Well, what kind of morality? Protestant? Catholic? Uh, right now, I am a Protestant. Uh, I was born and raised Southern, uh, Southern Baptist, but... I'm currently trying to find my place within the church. Um, I am definitely a Christian. I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and, our, and the true Messiah. But I will say that I don't think that Southern baptism in and of itself is the proper place for my beliefs at the time. But I'm basically still on the a spiritual journey in an attempt to find where I need to be when it comes to following Christ. It's always nice to be on a journey. You find your true self, whether religiously, politically, or just personally. Yes, I, I can't agree more. I, I do think that self-reflection from time to time is not only healthy for the mind and the soul, but also for your social standing in your social interactions is that as you go through life, if you don't critically think about your beliefs and the impacts your beliefs have on yourself, your environment, and by extension, the people around you, if you spend your days not really delving deep and looking into what you need to be real with when it comes to speaking with people and what you need to be real with yourself, then you're basically more like, uh, like an automaton. This is something that um, Dostoevsky talks about in one of his books is that man is, this is his belief. I don't completely agree with it, but he says that man is basically an automaton. It's, it's a, a robot that we are merely going through life, repeating the same thing, you know, waking up, eating, working, sleeping. And that's all we're really here for. I think that's a very fatalistic belief, but unless you are willing to have that internal monologue and that true self-reflection, I feel like you kind of are an automaton at that point. You really are just going through the motions and going with the flow of whatever the societal standards or beliefs are at the time. That's uh, great to hear. Uh, learning about that stuff is pretty interesting and whatnot, I guess. But we, um, uh, you and I are here today to speak about the resurgence of Christian morality in politics and a kind of increasing growing in other paleo-conservatives, or specifically the American First Movement, correct? Yes, yes. I, I am a member of the America First um we're not really a party yet. We do have some congressional support in the form of Wendy Rogers and Paul Gosar, but we don't. There's not a America First 
caucus. There hasn't been one since the mid-20th century. But America First is definitely a growing political ideology that is dominating the sphere of right-wing traditionalism. They, I feel like they are the inheritors, so to say, of the traditional conservative American movement. But I, I would say that I am a member of the America First movement. Um, I don't have any official standings in the movement. I'm not a streamer or an e-celeb. Um, other than just a couple of call-ins here or there, I mainly just watch the content and uh, do some research on my own outside. So just like, uh, just like, uh, just watch and observe the uh, the head on shows, I guess. Yes, yeah, so I'm. I'm basically. I wouldn't say I'm an outsider looking in. I, like I said, I am in the movement, but I don't hold any official title or position beyond uh, beyond an occasional chatter and caller. Mm, I see. And I know something's about the American First Movement. It seems to uh, ruffle the feathers with the uh, a bit of a popular establishment folks and uh, even further right-wingers as well. Yes, um, America First has definitely been a controversial uh movement to say the least and it's not so much that we have controversial ideas i mean the ideas that we're promoting and holding have been the same ideas that have you know promulgated the success of western society mainly america over the last 250 years nearly you know we're, we're not out here advocating for something that hasn't been a time proven method of building a strong society and community but what we are doing is that we are providing a a flank from the right, so to say, is that we are looking at the establishment conservatives, mainly TPUSA, but almost the entirety of the GOP as a whole and the associated media apparatus that surrounds it, we're providing a flank from the right where we are going and we are not only just asking questions, we are also critically analyzing you know, what does it mean to be a conservative in America? And we're kind of holding the feet, holding the uh, feet of these various political commentators and politicians to the fire when it comes to, you know, what it truly means to be right wing, whether it be something when it co comes to religion, when it comes to economics, when it comes to political action within the part, within the, uh, Congress or the state houses, we're basically coming in and trying to, I would say we're coming in, we're trying to provide a, a form of conservatism that is more appealing because it is a true form of conservatism. We're trying to conserve the political and social normalities that were prevalent in this country all throughout the 18th, 19th, and up until the mid to late 20th century. I also uh, noticed in the demographics of most of the American first movements, uh, mostly uh, the Zoomers or younger conservatives, Catholics, and uh, I guess a few amount of minorities in it. Like, you're Southern Baptist, right? 
yes, I, I am indeed a Southern Baptist. And doesn't it kind of conflict with some of your religions that most paleoconservatives or, well, people in the AF movement entirely are mostly Catholics? I would say that's more of a superficial delineation between the two, is that America First is a very strongly Catholic movement, but it's not a Catholic exclusionary group. We don't have Catholics that are coming out and saying, oh, you, you aren't a Catholic? Well, uh, you're not really America First. And it, America First is more of a Christian movement than a Catholic movement. And it's just it just so happens to be that a lot of the prominent members in America First, almost all the, uh, the e-celebs, so to say, you know, Nick, Dalton – Wurzel Root, you know, all, all the head guys are Catholic. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just I haven't reached a point where I would put my faith in the Catholic Church. But I think the idea that just because a majority of the upper echelons of the America First movement being Catholic doesn't quite make it a Catholic movement. It is a it is a true Christian movement. And we're we're making strides and we are striving, excuse me, to not give the impression or to turn away people who are indeed Protestant, you know, myself included. We're trying not to give the impression that we're turning away non-Catholics because they're non-Catholic. It just so happens, like I said earlier, that a majority of the upper echelons of the movement are Catholic and as far as when it comes to the demographics of the group, I would say that the America First movement is almost entirely Zoomers. I'm not going to contest that at all. I think that you know people born after 1995 are certainly yearning, at least when it comes to right-wing Zoomers, they're yearning for the – lifestyle and successes of the past generation and i think that they realize that the only way to get to that point is by you know taking up the moral responsibility and the moral mantle of the societies that we had then and uh yeah and when i say zoomers i mean zoomers like some that are a few years younger than me Oh, most definitely. I mean, there's been there's been multiple occasions where, you know, some of the head guys will be streaming and they'll get super chats, which, as I'm sure most of the audience already knows, super chat is where a viewer of the stream or uh, show can you can send a donation and tie a question or comment to it. There's been instances where someone will say, you know, me and my kids watch America first. You know, I'm, I'm 14 years old and I watch America first. There was uh, one incident on stream where a fellow was um, live streaming on a video chatting app. And it was an extremely young kid. I, I would say he could have been much older than 12. And he had the America first hat and he uh, he didn't quite have all the talking points, but I'm not going to hold that against him because he's a child. You know, most people aren't political when they're that young. But 
that it definitely is a movement of young people. But we also have, you know, some millennials, some Gen Y, Gen X. We have some boomers. Like I mentioned earlier, Paul Gosar from Arizona. And pretty soon you'll have some alphas too. Yes, I would say, you know, because Generation Alpha technically started being born in 2012. Granted, they're only seven or eight years old, so it might be a little early for them to be watching, you know, political content. But I would say over the next, you know, five to ten years, we're definitely going to see a strong, a strong showing in the Generation Alpha demographic. And for the uh, racial demographic, I would say that America First, you know, it. Everybody loves to slander America First as being white supremacist, alt right. You know, all, all the usual slanders when it comes to race. But we're not that. You know, we have – and not to sit here and say, oh, well, we, we have black streamers. We have non-white streamers. But it is true. You know, I don't think that people in the movement harbor a true resentment against people simply for their race. I'm not going to say that there aren't any people who are like that because – the way statistics work, there's going to be a couple people out there who do believe that way, but they won't be accepted in the movement beyond someone who just watches the show. Or just be ignored, right? Yeah, exactly. And this kind of ties back to uh, something you mentioned earlier about how you know America First was having some conflict with people on the you right. said further to the right. Yeah, yeah. further to the right, and I'm going to assume you're uh, – you're referencing the alt-right, you know, battle and the ensuing fallout that occurred between Richard Spencer and the alt-right mm-hmm. and Nick Fuentes and the America First movement. Yeah, is that, mean, most. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Oh no, go ahead, brother. It's your show. Like uh, most alt-righters, don't really care for the Christian morality, but more of the racial morality. Like some are either atheistic, don't care for religion some kind of secular or on some pagan shit. Yeah, that that's something that is just rife within the the alt-right, the the alt-right movement is there's a strong tie to either secularism where they view religion as an afterthought and they put, you know, the the mortal foil of racial differences above the transcendental foil of, you know, your life after this earth. They, or, they put, um, or a strong man, like some delusional strong man. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's also the, the, there's a, there's a strong pagan element to the alt right because like I said a moment ago, they have a hyper focus on the idea of, whiteness as a whole and the proto-religions of the white race are all the pagan Nordic religions that you find in Northern Europe. And weirdly, it's specific the Germanic pagans. Like, there's no love for the Roman Greeks or whatever the British had. Yes, exactly. Is that you, you do see a strong emphasis on, you know, Odin, Thor, Freya, and I think that tie. And I think that ties in because it is it is the Northern European paganism and polytheism. You know, it hails from Germany, Sweden, Norway, Iceland, and, and most of America is ethnically German. 
yes, Germans are the uh, second largest ethnic group in America. The, the largest is United Kingdom descendant, which you, you can further break that down into English, Scottish, and Irish. But if you lump all those together, they're obviously the largest constitution when it comes to the ethnic background of the citizens of America. But just like you said, the Germans are the second largest ethnic population when it comes to white Americans. Yeah. Yeah, back to the uh, descendant in the far right. Or is that it? No, I was going to continue down that path by saying, you know, when it comes to the disagreement that America First has with the alt-right, it comes down to not just the morality you know, the people on the alt-right are, you know, they, they are advocating for things that we believe are amoral. They're advocating for a secular society where there is animosity, hatred, and potentially violence against non-white groups. And that's something that America First doesn't believe in because we are a Christian group that is guided by Christian morality. You know, we, we don't believe that whites are superior to non-whites. We just recognize that over the course of history, white people have been able to advance and cultivate a culture that is successful enough to be able to colonize the world, quite literally. Mm -hmm. And, uh... So uh, you think paleoconservatism or the American first movement will make uh, any big gains in this in the future? I definitely do. I mean, 2021 was a rough year for the movement. There was a lot of deplatforming. There was a lot of government interference, media interference. But in the, in the face – repeat yourself, sir. Eternal interference and externals, right? Uh, yes, there there was definitely a large aspect of internal interference at the beginning of the year with AFPAC 2 and the Patrick Casey scenario. I'll get into that uh, in a little bit. But in the, in the face of all the external and internal harassment and problems that America First has, you know, undergone in 2021 – following the Capitol riot and, again, the schism between Patrick Casey and the America First movement, America First has grown almost exponentially. You know, we've had – we've uh, we have started a new streaming service that is, you know, rapidly increasing in popularity and notoriety. There are clips and videos of – America First representatives putting out the America First talking points that are gaining traction on all social media, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, you name it, you can find a America First clip somewhere in spite of all the censorship and banning and shadow banning that you see across all these tech platforms. So I would say that in the future, America First is going to experience – aggressive expansion is that we are rapidly approaching the point where America first is going to reach a critical mass where 
there's only so much that internet censorship can do to slow down the movement. And there will come a point where there's not anything that the tech companies can do to keep America first tucked away in the corner, so to say. Let's see. Pretty soon you'll be out in the out in the bow in the corners, I guess, right? Um potentially. You know, we try to avoid IRL content in most scenarios. Um, oh, right, yeah. Simply because simply because the connotation that the media has put on the America First movement, you know, again, labeled white nationalist, anti-Semitic, you know, homophobic, all these different, you know, labels is that it's not, it's not advantageous for us to begin just having, you know, picket lines on every street corner or outside of every, you know, state capitol building. Yeah. And I guess, and I guess that there will be the few that actually are, but will get most attention. And I guess the um had to have the little slip moments, right? Uh yes. I would say that, you know, America First isn't against IRL activism. It's more of a practicality argument than a feasibility argument. You know, it, it's not that we can't get groups of people to show up basically on demand. It's actually very easy to do that. And you can look at Nick Fuentes' um, live uh, vaccine protest he did in New York. He was able to draw crowds of two to 300 people in front of the mayor's mansion with, I believe it was like one or maybe two days notice in New York city, which is a notorious liberal stronghold. He was able to draw a crowd larger than <laughs> larger than most political activists can draw in a hometown area. So to say also uh, New York is a really Catholic region too, as well. Yes, there, there is a strong Catholic component in upstate New York and in the suburbs of New York City. So I think that definitely helps with drawing crowds because, you know, if you're only an hour and a half away, it's not that hard of a drive. It's only an hour and a half. But, to, but again, to host a right-wing anti-vax rally in the middle of downtown New York City – and basically be able to mog on the Antifa counter-protests that showed up and be able to outnumber them, you know, five or six to one. I think that definitely says a lot about the capabilities of IRL activism. But the point I was making earlier is that it's not the feasibility of getting people on the streets, the practicality of it. IRL activism is – it's a fickle thing. And especially when you're in the America First movement or you're – wearing America first branded material, unless it is, unless you were out there protesting for something that is widely accepted on the right wing, it's not really going to work. You know, when you have, when you have stopped the steal, when you have millions of conservatives can, you know, converging on a handful of state capitals and the national capital, the nation's capital, IRL activism works then because it's not just America First doing it. It's not just, you know, Nick Fuentes out there with a bullhorn. It's regular GOP conservatives. It's sometimes libertarians. Is that the media can't just take a slice out of that whole narrative and say that, 
oh, this is only America First event. It's only white supremacist when there's a crowd two to three times the size of the America First portion that's there for the same reason that isn't America First. So it's a lot harder for the media to try to spin that narrative. And again, that kind of ties in with the vaccine protests that Nick did in New York is that there are vaccine protests going on nationwide. It's a hot topic issue. So the idea of hosting a anti-vax rally in front of the mayor's mansion to protest the vaccine requirements in, in New York, that's going to draw support not just from America First, but also from the anti-vax conservatives, anti-vax liberal, uh, libertarians, excuse me, and even some anti-mandate liberals that you see out there. I mean, there probably are anti-vax liberals somewhere there. Oh, yes. You know, I'm, I'm not going to say that every liberal is in favor of the vaccine because, again, the way the statistics works, there's bound to be people who aren't. But I would say that when you see vaccine opposition from the left, it's mainly going to be opposition to the mandate of it. It's people who have gotten the vaccine. They believe the vaccine is safe, but they don't really think that it's right and proper to force it on people. That kind of ties into like the left center or the center left, um, excuse me, group of people, people who are basically like left-leaning libertarians. You know, they believe in some, you know, broader government thing, broader government programs and expansions in favor of a liberalization of society. Uh, that's nice. Uh, I'm going to stop right here. I got to get something at the door. Uh, yeah. Hey, are uh, my audio levels any better? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Excellent. Are my audio levels any better? Your audio is better. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Cool. Glad we got that job started out. So what were we talking about before now? Um, if I remember correctly, we were discussing uh, the oh. implications of IRL uh, meetups and protesting. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So you said something about uh, the media trying to slash the whole movement as a whole. And uh, I think that's like a bad thing because the more the media keeps saying, oh, these guys are white supremacists, Actual white supremacists show up thinking they're in good company. Yes, that that is definitely an aspect of it. Um, I mean, hello, hello. Hello, can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, You're, it seems like your mic went off right there when you said uh, you were going to say something. Yes, um, sorry about that. So there's definitely the possibility 
that, you know, true white supremacists would show up. But if, if you are already in the, you know, the alt-right pipeline, you know, you're watching, you know, Richard Spencer's content or various other, you know, alt-right content. American Renaissance, you, for example? Um, I haven't looked into them too much. Um, you know, when it, when it comes to the, uh, when it comes to the alt-right side of things, I've kind of relegated that to the broom closet, so to say. It's, they're almost irrelevant at this point but i'm, I'm not gonna make any you know hard stances i haven't looked at any of their content but you know you, you seem like a genuine guy so i'll say perhaps but i just haven't looked into them i don't want to put a stance on them here nor there without looking into it myself first yeah um yeah you were um saying But yeah, I was, um, I was, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. But as I was saying is that if, if you're already in that alt-right pipeline, you already know who America First is, and you, you probably already have some level of antagonism. So if you show up to America First event, it's probably going to be there as an agitator. You know, you'll come out and say that, you know, we're cucks for, you know, not hating minorities enough. And believing in the Jew on the stick. Yeah, exactly. That that's a that's another thing that they like to throw at us. It's like, oh, uh, Christianity is uh, it's actually not very. Uh, yeah, exactly. I don't even want to repeat some of the stuff they say about Christianity because it just puts a bad taste in my mouth just thinking about it. That and I think but, it some of the TOSs here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's not so much worrying about, you know, alt-right people showing up. It's, it's more so about, you know, turning people away from the movement. You know, it's, you know if, you, if you have people on Fox News saying that, you know, America First is full of white nationalists, well, then you're going to have a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, normal conservatives, you know, normie con, so to say, they're going to be turned away from that because they were told, you know, from cradle to grave that white nationalism is bad. Don't talk to white nationalists. So the slander of calling, you know, the America First movement a white nationalist movement, it's not so much to have alt-right people and white nationalists join America First. It's more so to convince people who are who are uh, trying to think of the word here? Who are subjective or subjectable to the message or agreeable to some of the things America First is saying? It's more so to turn them away and put them off from America First that they don't provide support in viewership or donations. And uh, it kind of, in a way, gaslights. I got some people who are already in the movement. Well, I guess if this liking this makes you a white supremacist. I guess I am a white supremacist. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like I said, we're taught from cradle to grave that white nationalists are the worst thing that you can be. And if you're associating with white nationalists, then you're a white nationalist. And again, it is it truly is gaslighting in its truest sense where you know, we will sit here and we will say, no, we're not white nationalists because we believe in XYZ. 
and then the media will turn around and say, oh, they're white nationalists, they're lying. They believe in so. ABC, too, and, uh, yeah, that kind of stuff. Uh, anything else um, yeah, exactly. about, uh, about the American First Movement? Um, as far as the movement goes, nothing right now. Like I said earlier, I'm not a representative by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just a member of the movement who's trying to, you know, spread the word around and try to argue the case for not just the movement itself, but the beliefs of the people who are in the movement, the beliefs of the movement itself. And uh, when you say all this stuff these past few minutes, do you think you say this for other um, American firsters or just yourself? Um... Probably a small amount of American firsters. I mean, I, I'm I'm sure there's some America firsters who are going to agree with what I'm saying, but I'm not trying to speak for the movement or for the people in the movement. I'm just trying to give a little bit of an insight and explanation into the movement itself. So I would say that you know what I'm discussing here is definitely you know, relatable for a lot of people in America first. But also I feel like it's somewhat relatable when it comes to people who aren't in America first. You know, when I touch on the tech censorship or the anti rallies and the beliefs and whatnot, I feel like there is a inherent relationship that can be built between right wingers as we are all subject to the overwhelming and all-encompassing you know technocracy that we live under when it comes to social media and the companies and people that control social media mm, i see um and what do you think who do you think has the larger voice in the uh in the american first movement when it comes to um people they look up to I would say Nick Fuentes, hands down. I mean, with, without Nick Fuentes, America First wouldn't exist. You know, Nick, Nick Fuentes is a you know not to uh, not to uh, glad hand him too much or brown nose, but you know he is a young, charismatic character that is extremely good at presenting logical and poignant takes when it comes to politics and creating relatable content for a younger audience you know without nick i mean like we would certainly have something approximate to america first but it wouldn't be near as successful or near as impactful as america first is now and will be like uh he goes through a lot like um uh, like like he's like a charismatic leader like do you see him as like some some figurehead of the ideology of paleocons, well, Zoomer paleocons, or do you kind of seem like some kind of a strong man or herder of the herd thing that's going on with the current uh, gripers? You know what I mean? So I would say that he has definitely become a figurehead of paleoconservatism because he is by far and away probably one of the chief paleoconservatives in the country he certainly is one of the he certainly is um the largest paleoconservative you know 
I wouldn't say talk show host because his show isn't really a talk show, but I would say that he's definitely become a figurehead in the America First movement. And at the same time, he utilizes this status that he's attained through his own actions to build and coalesce a movement that is strong, prosperous, and he can definitely direct and guide that movement in directions that are that are beneficial, not just for him, but all. Mm. So I, w- I would say he's he's definitely a figurehead. He certainly is a strong man, in my opinion. He is he's uncompromising when it comes to his morals. And you can go back and look at some of his content from four or five years ago, and it's you know different than it is now. Number one, because he was a young man. You know, he's seventeen or eighteen years old. Your politics right are bound to change as you mature. No, now he's uh, twenty three. Oh. Three years up and old than me, I guess. I see. Yeah, but you know he's he's been doing the political podcasting sphere for five, going on six years now, I believe. Oh. So, you know, if you go back and look at some of his older content, he was much more libertarian, but you could still see the conservatism that he was speaking of and as he's gotten more experience and as he's you know kind of matured he's finally arrived to the position that you know libertarianism is not going to be the avenue through which america is saved hello hello Yep, can you hear me? Okay, yeah, I'm talking about your phone because I heard a bit of fading out earlier. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it seems like uh, he was a... Hello? Yeah, I'm, I'm still here. Okay, it seems like he was somewhat of a paleo-libertarian and became a paleo-conservative, I guess. Yes, that... Um, from the outside looking in... You know, I wasn't there in the beginning. You know, I don't know him personally, so I can't speak on his position back then. But looking at some of his older content, I would definitely say that he is a he he was certainly a libertarian, but he had an eye for the utility and capabilities of a conservative, you know, more. A conservative government that utilized the state to make a moral society. Huh, that sounds nice. Also, I uh, heard most uh, American firsters or paleoconservatives aren't really so um, friendly with the free market, and you guys are into some kinds of protectionism. I wouldn't say it's a. I wouldn't say it's a. a I wouldn't say it's a uh, you know a, a damnation of the free market unto itself. We certainly aren't you know free market radicals. You know we don't believe that you should be able to buy you know handguns from a vending machine. You know we're we're not 
path, but we do believe that there is a certain level of economic freedom that is required. You're talking about background? Uh, yeah, Hello? I heard someone close the door in the background. Sorry. I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Neighbors are being a bit loud now. Okay. My bad. Oh, no, you're fine. You're fine. But there, there's certainly a level of free market um, utilization that's required for a healthy society. You know, we can't have people going to the store with their weekly allotted bread credits. That's that's no way to live in a society. But also we, re- we recognize the fact, and it is a fact, that unfettered, you know, free and free market guidance on society by the market itself is ultimately detrimental to society and the people contained within that society. And a prominent example is obesity in America. You know, America is obese as a whole. I believe we're the I know for I know for a fact that America has the most obese people in the world by sheer numbers and we're top 10 when it comes to obesity per capita and the only countries that outrank us are countries like Samoa which have a population less than 50,000. So when you look at America and the obesity rate I feel like that's a direct you know, response to the capabilities of, you know, the the market itself to create and sell cheap, unhealthy food that, in my opinion, doesn't really pass as food, but it's a conversation for another time, that there is a certain level of damage that unfettered free market capitalism will rot upon the society and the country. You there? But to kind of cancel out the dead air here, I'll continue. We definitely believe in protectionist trade policies. You know... The, the utilization of tariffs on other countries' goods is inherently positive for the country. You know, a lot of people will come out and say, oh, well, if we raise the – if we impose tariffs, they'll raise the price of goods, and they'll put tariffs on our goods. It's like while that's true, most countries have a trade deficit with America, and what America buys more goods from – their country than they buy from America. Prime example is China. When Trump came out and put tariffs in place against Chinese steel and various other products, everybody came out and said, oh, well, China's going to put a tariff on our goods, so the price is still going to go up. And my counter to that is that no matter how much, you know, no matter how much government regulation and tariffs the Chinese government put on American goods, unless they begin putting 80 and 90% tariffs on certain goods, they'll never be able to outpace what we buy from them. It's simply a numbers game. 
America is the number one consumer of foreign goods. So whenever a country, whenever we put tariffs on other countries, they just kind of have to deal with it because if they begin putting tariffs on our goods, it won't really matter because, again, we're buying more from them. It hurts them in the long run. Yeah, take a drink of water here real quick. But and also another component of the America First platform when it comes to capitalism and markets is that we we do believe that there should be moral guidance for the economy. There should be certain things that should not be profitable because of the moral hazard and the moral degradation they provide. Prime example is the porn industry. Porn is destructive in every manner. No matter who you are, where you are, you have... Fast and easy access to porn. And what porn does is that it will go in and buy because of, you know, lustful desires created by porn. It destroys your mind. It alters the chemical makeup of your brain and the chemical functions of your brain. And it's overall just harmful, especially for children during their developmental years. So when it comes to pornography, you know, it's of my opinion, and I'm sure this is an opinion that a lot of America First conservatives would agree with, that porn has no place on the internet and no place in America as a whole. And I have no misconceptions that there will always be porn. There will always be pornographic materials in the country. But we can limit the reach and damage that pornographic materials create by limiting the access to the pornography market of the country. Now, if we start putting up, if uh, we start putting up different, you know, internet barriers, so to say, or we begin finding people who are producing pornographic material then that would you know, help reduce the impact of pornography. So I would say that when it comes to America First and the free market, there needs to be not only a protectionism aspect, as in economic policy should always benefit the United States at every moment, and also there needs to be a moral guideline to it as well. We need to make sure that America is investing in moral projects and companies and helping you know prevent vice or degeneracy from promulgating across the country due to the simple idea that it's a free market people can do what they want well it's well i guess we can i guess some i guess uh, i guess i can uh, throw hands with that but it's like most people would say 
If a supply exists, a demand kind of exists already. Hello? Can you hear me? No, I'm still here. I was uh, taking a drink of water. Yep, I can hear you. I did was you, taking um, a drink of water. Oh, but... um, did you... I'm oh, sorry. You can speak if you want to. No, but... No, yeah, I, I would counter that by saying that I have no misconceptions that porn will be banned in America. No one will have access to it. There, there will always be pornographic materials readily available. Well, there will always be pornographic materials available. But there are certain barriers of entry that we can create, such as, you know, um, the people eight, who produce porn. And then oh, AGI... And uh, age ID to see if the person watching said porn could be, you know, 18 or over. Well, I, you know, in theory, that's a good idea. In practice, it falls flat on its face. I mean, I'm sure everybody who listens to this has gone to an 18 only site and just clicked the box that says, yes, I'm 18. And even if you begin instituting where you need a photographic ID picture before you can enter the site. Again, you can just take a picture of your older brother's or your dad's ID or your older sister or mom's ID. So unless you get very intrusive, like you have like webcam monitoring while you're on a certain website, you're not going to be able to get rid of that. And frankly, having something like that is far too much of an overreach and it's not practical i see uh hmm. and uh the thoughts of paleoconservatives on immigration uh way you uh i love i i guess yeah what are the thoughts on immigration so when it comes to immigration, you know, this the idea of what an acceptable level of immigration varies, but across the board, paleoconservatives believe that a at a minimum a reduction in immigration is required. You know, personally, I think there should be a a halting of immigration. America has taken in over 60 million immigrants in 60 years. One in three Americans were either they themselves born outside the United States or their parents were born outside the United States. Now, why that? Now, while that sounds fine and dandy, you know, signing shining city on a hill, America's a nation of immigrants, all that good stuff you hear about every day. In reality, Immigration is very detrimental to the core society and culture of the United States. You know, one in one in four one in four immigrants over the last sixty years have come from Mexico. Mm. And granted, the numbers aren't exact. It's not like down to the individual person, one in four, but that's a rough approximation. And that's why if you go throughout the American Southwest you will run into you know neighborhoods and enclaves where english is not only a language but it's often not spoken in the yeah, la I mean, public school system hello? in the uh, in the la public school system yeah i'm here in the uh, la public school system 3 in 10 
Hispanic children don't speak English in the public school system. You know, that is that is just a sign of overcrowding and overwhelming of resources when it comes to immigration. It's harmful. I mean, like most of those areas are southwest. Remember, Mexico used to own those places. So the demographics of Hispanics would be obviously huge from the start. And as immigrants go in, I guess they do make up a population that Disney as there before, right? Well, that kind of ties into the history of the American Southwest was that after the Spanish-American War, there was a large exodus of Spanish nationals and Mexican nationals that moved out of the American Southwest, mainly California, as America began to move west and began to settle more of these desert and arid regions. And also you had the Mexican-American War in which – there was another exodus of Mexican nationals from the United States because there was just a war between Mexico and the United States. But now that it's the 21st century, you are seeing something that is often referred to as the Reconquista. It's the reconquering of the old Spanish territories, i.e. New Mexico, Utah, Arizona, California, and Texas. You're seeing massive waves and influxes of Mexican nationals and just Hispanic nationals in general moving into these areas and upsetting the culture and society contained within. But it's not just limited to the – excuse me. It's not just limited to the American Southwest. It's across the entire country. Like Florida and, and- the – yeah, yeah, Florida is a prime example is that granted the amount of Hispanic influx of immigration to Florida has been a direct result of American antagonism with Cuba and the communistic regime contained wherein but if you there was a graphic that was posted I can't remember when the study was done but it was a national poll that took place after one of the censuses the Sensei. And it found that in the 1970 census, it listed out the ethnic background of different states. And you saw large Irish and Italian populations in the Northeast. You saw large Germanic populations in the Midwest. And then they redid a similar study after the 2010 census, and they found that the number one growing immigrant group in 48 out of 50 states was Mexican. You know, Mexicans are not just coming here and staying just in Utah, Arizona, and Texas. If they were, those states would, if they were, you know, again, 15 million uh, Mexican nationals over the course of 60 years, and then their children beyond, and grandchildren as well, those states probably would have had secession movements to join Mexico. But they're going I, all over like a shotgun blast almost across the entire country. I mean, I wouldn't say you succeed to Mexico. I mean, they left that place for a reason, right? They, It's not so much that they're leaving for cultural or political reasons. They're leaving for economic reasons. 
Mexico is a third world country. It is a underdeveloped nation that is basically focused on agrarian society, i.e. growing crops of various natures, if you understand what I'm poking at there. I don't mind. And they've recently... Oh, well, I wasn't sure if there's a TOS guideline there. I don't think there is. Not in... And it's, it's not just, you know, the drug trade. There's also pineapples, avocados, you know, throw any different item up there. You know, Corona beer, Modelo, tequila, <laughs> you know. And uh, bananas from the Yucatan region. Yeah, the... Uh, the... Uh, Oh, I can't remember her name. The uh, the banana lady from all the stickers. Chiquita Banana. Yep, the Chiquita Bananas. Thank you, the Chiquita lady. But I think that's but, like further south in the Central America part. Yeah, it, it definitely butts up. It's definitely down near the Panama area, but it still is in southern Mexico as well. Yeah. But anyways, is that a majority of the country is still in an agrarian society, as in most of the money is made through agriculture and you do have various industrial projects that sprout up along the U S Mexico border because it's cheaper to build things in Mexico than it is in America. So you see, you know, like Ford plants where they're assembling trucks and cars, you see different, um, excuse me, different manufacturing when it comes to aircraft parts, car parts, you know, you name it, anything that was, you know, basically any industrial infrastructure that was present in the United States from 1960 until 1990 has probably jumped south of the border, if not across the ocean. But, you know, as as far as, again, the the root issue of there not being a secession movement towards Mexico. It's not so much that they're coming to America because it's America. They're coming to America because there's money in America. They still view themselves as Mexican nationals most of the time, or they view their ties to Mexico as stronger than they are to America, which is understandable. I can't fault them for that. If I went to another country to make money, I would probably still have strong beliefs towards America. So I can't fault them for that, but it's just the fact that we have to address that You know, most of these Mexican nationals that move here and get citizenship have stronger ties to Mexico than they do to America. I mean, most of the families back there at that point, especially the ones that came straight from the border. Yes, that, that, that's another aspect that is a large hindrance to the naturalization and the integration of Mexican nationals is that when you look at immigration that occurred throughout the 18th and 19th century and even into the 20th century of America, you know, these people were having to cross the ocean to get here. You know, they, they didn't have ready access back to the homeland, so to say. They didn't have easy, easy access back to their family ties. If they left for America beyond sending a letter from time to time, there was no contact or way back. 
well, I shouldn't say and there now, was no way back, but there was no incentive to go back. And now some of their descendants uh, don't even know the native language, but a few slangs. Yeah, exactly. You know, like it, it's 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 something that I've noticed is that a lot of the um, a lot of the Americans who have ethnic ties to Europe, you know, myself included, you know, we we happen to learn all the swear words in the old tongues. You know, you have the Italians, you know, Bafangu, Fugazi, you know, Molignan, and then you have all the different German ones and whatnot. But I mean, there, yeah. there certainly is a little bit of a callback there. I mean, I can kind of see myself in that way. I'm like a fourth generation Eritrean on my father's side. Don't even know a thing of Eritrean. Ah, well, you know. I'm kind of, uh, you know, I personally, I think it's a, a good thing, but, you know, my family on both sides have been in America for, gosh, going on 250, 300 years now. My mother's side arrived into the southern United States in 1714, and my father's side arrived initially in the Northeast, but they initially in the Northeast around 1750, but then their family moved out to California in the 1800s. So, you know, I, I, do I have a ancestral homeland in Europe? Yes, I do. But, you know, my family's been here since before America was America. So I view myself as, you know, a member of the the founding stock, so to say, is I've kind of for, foregone my, you know, ancestral ties to Europe. Mm, mine's in show up until the fifties. Ah, well, you know, I'm not I'm not going to make any value judgments on that. You've been a you've been a nice guy, and you know, like you said, it's fourth generation. You know. From what I can tell from our interactions prior to this podcast, you seem plenty integrated to me, and I'm glad you're here. Thank you. But um, what do you think um, paleocons can sort this thing out? I think when it comes to a political solution to the immigration Hold issue, on a second. Uh, continue. Yeah. When it comes to a political solution to the immigration issue, I would say that – the only real way to address it is by really just trying to get as much power while we can and then utilizing that power to begin implementing restrictions on the amount of immigration that we get. As you know, we begin – I wouldn't say we go down the route of instituting quotas and maximums for immigration from certain countries. It's certainly possible to do, you know, Trump did limit immigration from certain Arab countries. He used it. He used the guise of uh, international terrorism as his reasoning. But I feel like a using utilizing the reasoning of having so many immigrants over a short period of time is that you can see the change that the country has un- undergone as a response of this. You know, when you look at the baby boomer generation born 1946, to 1965, over the course of their lifetimes, they've watched America go from a 90% European descendant country 
to a 60% European descendant country and all the different issues and changes in culture that, that, that accompanies that. So if you, so if we came out, we said, we're going to begin limiting immigration to give time for all the immigrants that are already here to become acclimated and integrate to a American culture. I feel like that that would be the best way to go about it because there would, there would be broad support for that, not just on the right, but also on the left. What makes you uh, think the left would uh, support something like this? Well, the reason I would think the left would, and now granted, not the entire left, but there are a lot of older liberals and Democrats, mainly Democrats, that are in favor of when immigrants come here, they kind of forego not their culture or identity, but they basically put their culture and identity as a modifier of their American culture. It, it's kind of like the, uh, the verbal wordplay when you say, oh, I'm a Mexican-American. Or American-Mexican. Yeah, well, doesn't quite flow right, but also you have to look at when you look at the old when you look at the old Latin way of stating things is that you have your modifier out front, you know, like a good example, antithesis. You have your thesis, that's your idea. The modifier is anti, i.e., opposing. So when you say someone is a Mexican American, they're an American that is descended from. Mexican people or the Mexican country, German Americans, Irish Americans, Italian Americans, you name it. So the idea that when immigrants come here, not to forego their identity or their history, but to simply use their identity and history as a modifier for the base American culture and identity that already exists here in the country. And this is something that it has um, bipartisan support. Their support for Im integration by immigrant groups on both sides of the aisle. This is something that you see in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, where you'll see Republicans come out and say, "Oh, just as uh, just as long as they come here legally and they, you know, they start buying Big Macs, driving Ford F-150s." And then you'll have Democrats coming out here saying, well, as long as they come here, but they respect the culture and identity that America has. Yeah, I guess. Nothing wrong with being in Big Macs and Fords, but you still got to respect the culture, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I'm, I'm more of a Chevy guy myself, but... Well, I got a car at the moment, but I've been looking at some Fiats. Hmm, Interesting. I mean, it's not like I can afford one, but one could dream. Am I right? Yeah, exactly. And speaking of dreams, do you think the dream of a paleo-conservative, more Christian moral America would uh, come true in your lifetime or maybe when we're all gone? Um, I don't think it'll happen in our lifetimes. I mean, we may have paleoconservative enclaves in the form of state governments, you know, or, the, the, the dichotomy. Small... Oh, I'm sorry, you go ahead. Like, you know, the, the dichotomy of, you know, 
blue states and red states. I think we'd have something similar to that, or maybe you'd have certain principles. Uh, principalities that would have you know a more paleoconservative leaning but i don't think we're going to have frankly i don't think we're going to have a paleoconservative national government in our lifetimes no i I probably uh like like probably a small presence in congress and the senate or a few communities that swing that way but not a huge front like that Oh no, yeah. In, in our lifetimes, I there's definitely going to be a paleoconservative caucus in the Republican Party or even potentially a paleoconservative party. You know, third parties don't exactly have the best results in national elections or even House and Senate elections, but there will definitely be members of the National Congress that are paleoconservatives. And there's also going to be state government and even especially municipal government that is paleoconservative. I mean, there's several statewide candidacies across my state that there were, you know, there were two or three that were running on the paleoconservative ticket. And unfortunately, they didn't win their primary, but two out of the three were the top runner up. You know, one of them only lost by about four percent. Christ. Which, when it comes to state, yeah, yeah, when it comes to state elections where voter turnout is pretty low, you know that's it's not too bad. And when it comes to municipal paleoconservative governments, that's even easier. You know, this is something that a lot of people don't understand: is that you know your local government, like your local city or county government, unless you live in a major city, it's all run by you know basically baby boomers who have been on the same position for 20 years because no one you know no one opposes them during the elections it's very easy for you to win a local elected position all you ha- literally all you have to do is get your name on the ticket and go knock on doors for a week or two and let people know that you're actually running and obviously you have to you know campaign a little bit you have to tell them hey you know, go go to your local, go to the local bar that a lot of people go to. And be like, hey, you know, I'm running for Ward Three Alderman. Here are my positions. I'm a member of the community. You know, it's very easy to win local office if you put the effort in. Or do what that one guy did during the '90s: buy some TV telegrams and say you're running. What's his name again? He had like 19 votes as a third party. Uh, so that would be Ross Perot in the yeah. um, 1994 presidential election, I believe. Now, he didn't get any electoral votes, but he did get 19 million um, votes on the popular. He got 19 votes, he, 19 million popular votes. He didn't win any states. But frankly, I mean, there's only been two relatively successful third-party runs in American history, at least since the advent of the dichotic American government between Republicans and Democrats. And that's been Theodore Roosevelt, which resulted in a landslide victory for the opposing party member. I can't remember who it is off the top of my head, but that was when Theodore Roosevelt infamously made the Bull Moose proclamation. 
And then the other one is 1994 between Ross Perot, Bill Clinton, and oh, who was it? One of the Bushes, I think. I yeah. think it. No, it, it wasn't. It, yeah, it was Bush Senior. Actually, it was Bush Senior. Yeah, but, I think it was Taft that run against uh, Theodore. Yeah, that that sounds about right. I haven't I haven't looked into it as of late. Can't remember off the top of my head, but you know, as far as third party showings goes, you know, it it basically ends up being a landslide victory for the opposite aisle party. It basically divides the vote. So yeah. I don't think there'll be an America First party, but there'll definitely be an America First contingent within the right wing, whether it be the GOP or conservative movement. Or some kind of um, outsider. Know what I mean? Yeah, you. I mean, there will definitely be, you know, America First candidates that get their name on the national ticket in my lifetime. Certainly within the uh, Senate and House races, they'll have their name on the ticket, but I don't think there'll be a dedicated America First Party because the Libertarian Party's been around going on 60 the 76. years now. And uh, yeah, I exactly. heard their, their first, like, their first runner was like, uh, had a female vice president, I think. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's... You know, un unfortunately, the Libertarian Party, which has been around much longer, has much more money. You know, they it's, it's you know all, all the Libertarians are gonna you know start seething at this, but the performance of Libertarian Party has been laughable at best. You know, it's unfortunately a lot of the Libertarian cans that you see, they just simply aren't serious candidates. I mean, you know, as they, much they'll as have, they'll have talking points. They'll have talking points that you know are in line with libertarian ideology. But there's a lot of impracticality to it. You know, you'll see a lot of libertarian candidates that come out and say, "End the Fed. We're going to end the Fed." Okay, how, how are you going to do that? How are you, yeah? How are you going to get in there and upset a 100 year old institution that has had control of the monetary system for a hundred years? You know, it's as much as I'd like to see the Fed ended from a practical standpoint, that's going to take decades to do. And I maybe mean, with the, the rise of cryptocurrencies, it's possible now, but. No bite. No libertarian will say anything about it. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. and it's the candidates themselves. Like, the last one, Joanna Jorgensen, had a vice who literally named himself. After a My Little Pony character. Yeah, Sp yeah Spike Cohen. Like, you holy know, you, And also, you, yeah, you, you look at the most famous libertarians. I mean, like you have Ron Paul and Rand Paul. You know, those guys are solid. I don't agree with them on everything. But, you know, those guys are solid. But then also you have people like Vermin Supreme. You know the guy with the guy with the boot on his head. It's like really, that that's one of your, that is one of your prominent political figures is Vermin Supreme. Like I mean, I it's mean, just he not gives, a serious. He gives the same wacky vibe as Lord Buckethead. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's. 
it's just not a serious, you know, I, I just don't see any serious political capabilities of the Libertarian Party other than, you know, acting as a kind of a, uh, a cistern for Republicans and Democrats that are upset at the government for one reason or another. And then you have you know, the green. And then, hello. Yeah, I'm still here. I'm cool. still here. You're good. Just want to make sure you're still there. No, yeah, you're good. Anything else? Uh, not as of now. I mean, unless you want to get into like the, uh, unless you want to get into some of the more like direct political arguments, you know, like. Abortion, voting rights, guns. Unless you want to get into something like that, I uh, I think I'm good. I guess we can go for another ten minutes. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, gun control? I am avidly against gun control. Um, I do think that there should be certain restrictions, and again, I can I can hear the libertarian seething in the chat. But you know, I think there should be certain restrictions. You know, number one. You have to be a U.S. citizen. You know, if you want to enjoy the rights of the American Constitution, you have to be a citizen underneath that Constitution. Um, I hate to interrupt you, but we're not live. It's just a recording. Oh, okay, okay. But yeah, yeah. Anyways, um, you know, I I do think number one, you have to be a U.S. citizen, and this is kind of a this is kind of just like a broad requirement. If you want the protections and rights of the Constitution, you have to be a citizen underneath that Constitution. That's you know a pretty general guideline. The next one is that you know when it comes to when it comes to automatic firearms, I think you do have to take at least a some form of training and or test for it. You know, and then I would say for explosive devices such as you know like grenades or you know, RPGs, insert explosive device here. Again, that would fall under, you know, some form of, you know, class requirement or licensing requirement. And you can roll it into one, you know, you could have just like a general, you know, advanced firearms license where if you, you know, if you take the classes and you pass the test for it, you can get machine guns and explosives. But as far as just like, you know, low level gun control, constitutional carry at 17 and, you know, unrestricted access, no magazine limits, no firearm classification restrictions, you know, that that's my position. Um, let's see. So you think they so they should so a tiny amount of gun control, just not heavily a lot. Yeah, exactly. And it's not so much it's not so much that the license for the automatics or the explosives will be there to prevent people from getting it. It's just to prevent <laughs> frankly, it's it should just be there to prevent idiots from getting it. You know, I'm I'm a strong believer that there are certain people who are too stupid to have certain things. You know, I've spoken with enough people across this country, you know, whether it be from, you know, people on the east side of St. Louis to people from rural South Carolina who 
you have to drive 20 minutes to get to a gas station. I've talked to a lot of people in this country, and I am firmly of the belief that there are some people out there who are just too stupid to have to be responsible enough to have certain firearms or capabilities of firearms. Hmm. I guess. So like, uh, by stupid, do you mean like intellectually stupid or just do stupid things with guns? A combination of both. I mean, I think, you know, you can be, you know, you can be illiterate, but still be a very responsible person. You know, a prime example is some rural parts of Arkansas where the literacy rate is under 40 percent, yet these people are functioning. Yeah, I know where these people are functioning member. And this this is like certain like backwoods towns that have a population of like 200. This isn't like a whole county has literacy rate under 40 percent. But this is just like little tiny like valley communities. But, you know, where you can where you can be illiterate, where the literacy rate's under 40%, but they're functioning members of society that still hold a job, still pay taxes, they still maintain the land that they have. Where they are functioning members of society, they just they just don't read too good. But hmm. there, there, there is a intelligence aspect to it. Like, I, frankly, I don't think people with, you know, severe autism should have access to firearms but that's simply because there's a certain level of critical thinking and like situational awareness that is impeded as a result of their disability and it's not their fault you know i'm i'm not saying you know people with a mental handicap shouldn't have guns But it gets to a certain point where much like with driving, much like with driver's licenses, you know, there are certain mental defects that prevent you from getting a driver's license because you aren't capable of maintaining a safe position on the road. My stance is similar when it comes to guns. Oh, Hmm. Uh, what's um, hmm. I guess that is something to think about, I guess. I mean, personally, I'm no fan of gun control either, but I think I'm a bit more looser than you are. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that's understandable. You know, as a result of the slow creeping encroachment on the Second Amendment that we've seen over the last 40 years, it's understandable for a lot of people to say no gun laws now or ever. It's understandable for them to have that position, but I think from a practical standpoint, I don't think it's applicable to the country. But, see. you know, it's it's neither here nor there. It's a political disagreement. I'm not worried about it. Like, uh, what is your position on drugs? Like, uh, personally, I don't really mind a bunch of drugs be legalized or whatnot. But uh, for paleoconservatives, or at least yourself, what are your thoughts on them? Um, as far as the paleoconservative movement, there is a hard stance against drugs, and it's more from the moral aspect. You know, when it comes to drug use, it is. Let me let me rephrase this. When it comes to drug abuse, you know, addiction is the main thing. You know, when it comes to drug abuse. It definitely ties in with the morality of vice and the impact it has on society. 
you know, if if you have a society where people have readily accessible, you know, heroin, crack, meth, you know, all, all these different things, it's not going to be a good society. And the reason that is is that something that comes with this drug use and abuse is a more excuse me a moral decay that comes along with it and that's something that just can't excuse me I think ups that just can't be tolerated in society and this goes not only for like hard like the uh, the traditionally banned drugs like heroin crack and meth but this also goes with a lot of pharmaceutical drugs you know i i think that having half of america on antidepressants birth control and you know pain pills i don't think that's healthy for society either i think that there needs to be a strong emphasis on a more natural form of pain pain treatment and a more spiritual way of assessing mental health issues. So when it comes to, you know, when it comes to harder drugs, like I said, meth, heroin, crack, I'm against the legalization of those drugs simply for the moral hazard of them being legal. Because if it's legal, more people will do it. And as a result, as a result society will decline. And you, you see a lot of arguments where, there are certain northern European towns where they um, where they will legalize it. They'll tax it quite a bit, but they'll legalize it, and you know you'll see that the overdose rates are down and the uh, the incarceration rates for it are down. But something a lot of people don't touch on is the lack of a social safety net that's presented by the society itself. Is that and when also, you have a uh, oh, I'm ahead. sorry. And also a different lifestyle, kind of like, uh, like in some countries they do certain drugs for different reasons. You know what I mean? Yes, you know, uh, something that's very prevalent in Northern Europe is a lot of. Well, I should say it's prevalent all over, but it's the use of opiates. Which, frankly, I think opiates are just going to be. Well, I should say they are the new crack, in my opinion. You know, they're being handed out like candy. Not so much anymore because people are starting to realize the harmful effects of it. But from like the mid 90s until like the mid 2010s, you know, you could walk to literally any clinic in America, say your back hurts, and you could get an opiate prescription. And that's the difference between the other drugs. This is coming from pharmacies and whatnot, not from the streets, unless, you know, someone realizes is getting that desperate to get some opioids. Yeah, exactly. And it, it ties back in with my stance when it comes to phar- pharmaceutical drugs as well, is that, you know, just because a doctor says just because, you know, some doctor who's on the payroll from Pfizer says that this opiate's actually good for you doesn't mean you should take it. I think there should be strong, like, you know, legislative and legal barriers to the mass distribution of hard pharmaceutical painkillers. Uh, pharmaceutical antidepressants and various other, you know, narcotics. I think we need to, as a society, need to shift more, need to shift away from laboratory-created solutions when it comes to medical capabilities to spiritual and natural. 
and when I, when I, mean, I say spiritual, I don't mean you know like go get your palm read and have you know someone tell you you're a Capricorn. I mean you know a lot of the a- anxiety and depression that you see across America can easily be remedied by simply introducing and believing in religion. Now, I would say Christianity is the only proper religion to be, you know, putting your faith in. But if there's a certain religion that isn't Christianity that helps, you know, reduce your depression and anxiety and helps, you know, heal your body as well as your mentality and soul, I would say go for it, even if it isn't Christianity. I guess that is interesting. People do look to God in times of need. And rightfully so. I mean, he, you know, he is the creator and he is the master of the universe. Everything that happens is by his will alone. So if you're going through trials and tribulations, turn to him and don't turn to him and say, well, why are you doing this to me? Why, why, what did I do to deserve this, Lord? Don't or why won't you, or, or why won't you help me? That kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Don't turn to him and say stuff like that. Turn to him and say, I understand that you're challenging me. I understand that you're trying to build me up as a better person, and I will stay the path, and I will maintain my faith in you. Uh, well, that was great talking to you, um, um, Horatio. That was... Yeah, that was, it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was, uh, it was good talking to you, too. You know, um, it's one of my uh, one of my first podcast appearance as a guest. I uh, hope it turns out well for you. Me too. Sometimes people don't come around. I have to share the podcast with you around a bit sometimes. Uh, well, and that's how it is with every startup podcast. You know, you look at you, know, you look at you know jo- you look at the Joe Rogan Experience episode one back on. <laughs> Back on, I don't even know where you can find it nowadays. You know, when he started his podcast, he had like two people listening, and then by the end, by the end of the first month that it had been posted online, it only had like a hundred views, and they were all friends of Joe. And now look at him. You know, he's pulling you know several hundred thousand concurrent live concurrent viewers and millions of views on his uh, podcast every day. So, yeah, and they're from everywhere too, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean like as far as I know, I got like th- most of my viewers are either American, but I got a couple of Saudis and Vietnamese people watching my stuff. Hey, you know, uh, who knows? Maybe the uh, maybe the Ice House might become the next Air National podcast. You just gotta just gotta keep on that. You gotta turn your mindset into a grind set, man. The Sigma male move. <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone, exactly. it's been me. It's been your lad, Ice House and Horatio speaking. Horatio, you got anything else to say before you go? Um, I would say this. You know, if you uh, if you want to look into what America First is, I would highly recommend going to cozy.tv. It's a streaming platform that Nick Fuentes built along with the help from uh, some developers. So I would say if you're interested in what we believe and, you know, what type of people are in the movement, that's a good place to go because it's almost exclusively gaming content and America first content. And Christ always has your back. 
Oh, so true. So true. You can always turn to him at any time, and he'll always welcome you with open arms. Yeah. Well, it's been your lad Ice Guy or Ice House and stay frosty.